Last time we mentioned, as we looked at chapters 36 and 37 in our last time together, chapters 36 through 39 in the book of Isaiah really give to us sort of another brief section that transitions now into chapter 40, a, a half of the book where you'll notice is drastically different than what we saw in chapters 1 through 35. And chapters 36 through 39 in Isaiah's prophecy become very much like a historical narrative now. They read much more like what we saw in places like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, a lot of the more historical narrative books of the Bible. And really it's recounting for us a lot of the backdrop, the underlying backdrop of Isaiah's prophecy and things that he was prophesying regarding and events that were transpiring during that time historically. And kind of right in the center of the prophecy as God kind of divides two major sections of the book, he gives us a lot of this historical backdrop. And as we've seen, a lot of it uh, in these four chapters is a particular reference to a lot of the events that transpired in the life of King Hezekiah. And remember, King Hezekiah was one of the good uh, kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a godly king. Certainly, he was not flawless. We'll see some of that even in our account this evening as we look at these verses together, but uh, in the southern kingdom, which had some good and some bad kings, he was one of the good kings who did some of the better things for the nation in his governance as well as just spiritually, but he had his flaws and made his share of mistakes as well. Often we say, and it's so true, that even the best of men are just men at best, and, and we all have clay feet and make mistakes, and uh, we see this in Hezekiah's life as a king as well. Uh, chapter 38, verse 1, if you'll notice as our account picks up, and we'll look at chapters 38 and 39 to finish out this section this evening, and uh, chapter 40's got some really wonderful things. We'll launch into that next time. Uh, some of the most wonderful things we'll see in Isaiah's prophecy are much yet ahead of us still. But chapter 38 tells us that it was in the days... Uh, those days, excuse me, that Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order. In other words, get your affairs in order, for you shall die and not live. So chapter 38, verse 1 begins by indicating to us that for some reason, Hezekiah had fallen sick. We're not told exactly what the sickness is. We'll see as we come really to the end of chapter 38, particularly that there was some type of a uh, boil or some type of a sore that had developed on his body in connection to this obviously terminal illness. We're told here that he was not just sick uh, with a passing cold or some type of virus or even just some bodily affliction, but Clearly what was going on was terminal because it says here he was sick and he was near death. So apparently it was very evident to him. It was very evident to anyone in that uh, palace uh, of servants that he had. There were those in that day who practiced forms of medicine as well that the king was terminal that it was very likely that he was going to die, and this was something that was somewhat evident. But nonetheless, just like anyone who's very ill or who's chronically ill or terminally ill, you don't know for certain. Is there going to be healing? Is there going to be recovery? I mean, that's something many times that we're completely aware of. But this becomes something where now the answer is clear because the Lord, who does know all things, who's sovereign over our lives. Again, Psalm 139 tells us that all of our days are written in God's book before one of them comes to pass. God is the author of life, and yet at the same time, uh, Job understands the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's the author and the origin of life, and he also is the one who has determination when we draw our last breath, how that happens, how our life comes to an end, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 that it's appointed for man to die once and to face judgment. So death is an appointment for all of us. The challenging thing is the one appointment that we do not know the day or the hour of, but it's an appointment that we will keep. It's the one appointment you can't escape. 
but you don't know the hour of that. You don't know the day of it. And I bring some of that to your attention because some of what happens in our passage tonight is very unique and almost leaves us in a little bit of a quandary of some of those biblical realities because notice the Lord who knows all things knew that this sickness that Hezekiah was dealing with, the disease he was undergoing, the the very poor health he was in, that he was near death, and the Lord now sends the prophet of God. He sends Isaiah, if you would, on a pastoral visit, and imagine how difficult it must have been to go make this visitation. And Isaiah goes to Hezekiah, the king, with a word from the Lord and says to him, thus says the Lord, Hezekiah, set your house in order. This sickness is not something you're going to recover from. Hezekiah, you're going to die. This is going to result in your death. This is the thing that's going to bring the closure to your life. He says, you are going to die and you're not going to live. Now, Rather than you struggle or wrestle if you're one of those overthinker kind of people, I know they don't exist, but just pretend if you're one of those overthinkers where you have to figure everything out. The bottom line at the end of the day, this word from the Lord was true, and we're going to see the extension of 15 years that Hezekiah gets by pleading with the Lord. The bottom line, that word of the Lord was still true regardless, because the bottom line is he ends up in this situation ultimately dying and and eventually dying anyway. So when the Lord says to him, look, you're not going to die, you're going to live, was God's, uh, or says to him here, excuse me, uh, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. The bottom line is whether it happened at that moment or it happened 15 days from now or it happened 15 years later, the same result ultimately happened anyway. He ended up ultimately dying. (laughs) So Uh, You can beat yourself up and go into a quandary of, wait a minute, you mean you can extend your lifespan by praying and asking God? Look, at the bottom line, at the end of the day, everybody is ultimately going to face death's doorstep, and ultimately everybody is going to end up dying eventually. And here the Lord says to him, Hezekiah, eventually you're going to die, you're not going to live. You can't ultimately outlive the death process, unless in our situation as a born-again Christian, we experience the rapture of the church. That's the one option (laughs) for us to be able to escape the death process. But if that does not transpire, ultimately, the last thing typically that we do not recover from is the thing that we will end up dying from, unless you have a tragic accident and an auto accident or, God forbid, something of that nature. But typically, for the majority of the human race, the last thing we don't recover from as far as illnesses, sickness, which we get all throughout our lives, disease, deterioration of the body, is the thing ultimately that will lead to the end and the closure of our life. And imagine, however, hearing this, the weighty message, Hezekiah, it's time to set your house in order. In other words, get your affairs in order. If there's anything Hezekiah you need to sort out, if you have to sort anything out in relationships, you better address that because your time is limited and the word of the Lord was that he was not going to recover from this. And so therefore God was giving him a moment of grace, a reprieve, if you would, giving him a chance to know in advance. Many of us don't get a word like this from the Lord. (laughs) The majority of people don't get to hear from God, look, uh, you are going to pass, you are going to die soon, so set your house in order. The majority of us have to somewhat sense that through doctor's observations and the awareness maybe of our own declining health, but Hezekiah has no need to question any of that. He hears Get your affairs in order, do what you need to do, make things right with relationships, you know, get things prepared, whatever that may mean, circumstantially, financially, Hezekiah, uh, you're going to die from this and you are not going to live. Now, that must have been, nonetheless, a very hard message to hear. I don't care who you are and how much faith you have in the Lord, everybody still struggles with their mortality. And that's a hard thing to hear, whether you're hearing from a physician, a doctor's report, this is a terminal disease, or your, you know, cancer stage or whatever it's at, you know, more than likely, you know, you're not going to survive this, barring a miracle, barring a, you know, miraculous recovery that's maybe way outside of the norm in one of the rare situations. That's a heavy thing to hear. And so Hezekiah hears these things. Now, on the other side of that, imagine how hard of a message that must have been to deliver. Imagine how difficult for Isaiah to have to walk in 
to the king, who he has some degree of relationship with, as a man of God, to have to go in and to speak that hard message to him, but out of love for God and honoring God, and really out of love for Hezekiah, rather than lying to him, he had to say some really hard things and speak the truth because the truth was what he needed to hear in this situation. He would have done no value by withholding speaking that truth to him. This was something the Lord told him to share. He knew it was something he was to communicate. Was it a hard message to share? I'm certain it absolutely was. That's probably a very difficult thing to have to go in as the Lord reveals that to you. I mean, imagine people even potentially thinking, who told you that, Isaiah? How would you know that? Are you God? I mean, again, just you can imagine all the dynamics of that and, and the weightiness of, man, Lord, you want me to say that? Who's going to, and I wonder if Isaiah is anything like you and I, if he's wondering, could this really be the Lord? I mean, maybe I'm thinking that, boy, that would be really bad if I go in and say that, and that really wasn't the Lord, and I just assumed it was the Lord, and my radar was off, and I say something thinking it's from God, and it really wasn't from God, and then I end up either looking like a fool, or my prophetic ministry has now been you know, damaged or questionable, or the king gets angry with me. But nonetheless, in obedience, Isaiah does what sometimes as well we may need to do, that out of honor for God and really love for people, even though it is not easy at times to say something, if the Lord has told us to communicate something to someone, we must do that obediently. And we are doing nothing but a tremendous disservice if we do not convey that truth to them. Because it was in the conveying of that hard truth that ultimately Hezekiah was then able to process this personally between him and the Lord in his own relationship. Isaiah's job was onefold, to speak the message, to say the truth, to share what needed to be shared on God's behalf. So he goes in, says to him, listen, Time to get your house in order. Unfortunately, Hezekiah, the Lord's made it evident that you should prepare because you're going to die and you're not going to live. Now, let me just say in connection to that before we move on, ultimately, though we may not all be given that message in a time of illness, that truth still pertains to every single one of us. The reality that to some degree... All of us should live in light of facing the reality that death is a part of human existence. All of us should live in light of that reality. All of us should live in light of the reality that part of living is knowing you're going to die. Part of living is facing the reality that the further you go, the closer you are to dying. Part of living is understanding life is not perpetual forever, and so really you don't understand and you never will live properly until you live in the reality that there's an expiration date on your life and that life does have a closure moment, and it's when you're able to confront the reality that I am not immortal, I am going to die at some point, and maybe even if things arise, to realize well, this could be the thing that leads to my death in the near future, that's what helps us to live properly and really allows us, like Isaiah was telling Hezekiah here, to really set our own house in order, to get our own personal life in order. If there are things we should address in relationships that we're leaving unresolved, that we don't leave them unresolved any longer and we address them and we get those affairs in order if we're being irresponsible financially, we're not planning properly, that we would get our affairs in order and stop playing irresponsible. That we would realize, listen, this is a reality. See, the problem is, is that we live in a culture and a generation where everybody wants to dismiss the reality of death. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to face it. Every single time you turn around, there's a new live forever diet going on, you know what I mean? Just do you eat plant? Do you eat carnivore? Do you eat this way? Do you eat that way? I mean, I mean, we're perpetually trying to do everything that we can, not just to live healthier lives. Part of the underlying issue in that is we also, we all want longevity of life. And it's just been bred into us because we are a culture that does not like to face the reality of death. And look, I can even say that goes so far as we live in this Western civilization, even with the foods that we eat and all that kind of stuff. Many of us are very out of touch with death. 
We don't live in a culture, nor do we live in a time period where we realize the food that we eat was once a living animal and it got killed on a farm and slaughtered and a life died to eat the food that's keeping us alive. We just go to ShopRite and pick up pork chops and ham and steak, and it's all processed and it's there for us. And so we kind of have a tremendous disconnection from the death reality. Nobody ever wants to go to funeral services. Nobody wants to go to memorial services. We do everything we can to try and elude that reality. And there's a part of that, quite honestly, that's very, very unhealthy. Because the sooner we come to terms with the reality that this is a part of human existence, then we can live with our affairs in order. We don't have to, in the last minute, be rushing to maybe try and set our affairs in order. We can, on the front side, live with our affairs in order and keep our house in order so that the reality is, like David said, there's but a step between me and death. And David said, look, I, I, there may be one more step and it's over for me, but I'm okay with that because I'm keeping things in order and that's a much better way to live. So very important that we realize, even though this was very heavy, gra you know, grave news to hear, to some degree, this is something that we should all be recognizing, living in light of this reality. Now, as Hezekiah hears this really heavy news, much like you and I, he's shocked, he's burdened by this, his own mortality, his human fears kick in, and this is a man of God even. It says, verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall, and that's very likely because there were people in the room attending to him, not only Isaiah who had come in, but maybe other servants, those who were there. Again, this was a king. It's not like kings get a whole lot of privacy. So the only privacy he really has here is turning his face toward the wall. The idea is to turn his face away from people because, again, we don't know. Were his family members in the room when that news was spoken? Were they, oh, my goodness. I mean, was there the reactions of people, the servants? Oh, my goodness, the king's going to die. And so he wanting some privacy. This isn't, I don't picture Hezekiah here like pouting, turning towards the wall like a, you know, a pouty child here because he's so upset or angry. He just wants privacy here. So he turns away, no doubt, from all those who are there. And it says that he prayed to the Lord and said, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept, it says, bitterly. So Hezekiah does the one thing you can do in a situation like that. When you come to terms that circumstances are not only very hard, but desperate and completely outside of your human control, what else can you do but turn away from every other human being, turn directly to God in humble brokenness, in sincerity, and begin to just weep and express yourself before the Lord and begin to just pray and to just talk it through with God. I mean, when you hear heavy news like that, you don't have a whole lot of other options other than to look to the Lord, you realize how fragile life is in those moments. You realize how completely out of control and helpless you are when you're in desperate situations. And sometimes we find ourselves, even if it's not something like this, in scenarios where something really heavy comes into our life and we realize, I can't fix this. There's nothing I can humanly do to solve this situation. I'm completely dependent upon God here. This is totally in the hand of God and in God's determination and in God's power. And we are forced to do what Hezekiah does here, to just seek the Lord in prayer and to pour out our heart before him. And as Hezekiah begins to pray in verse 3, when he says, Remember, Lord, how I've walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. I don't see that as Hezekiah's prayer that he's in a way of almost like bribery asking God to help him based upon, for example, because he's earned it because he's been such a good follower of God. I don't sense that Hezekiah here is sort of a self-righteous, well, Lord, you owe it to me because I've been so loyal to you and, and, and I've walked before you in truth and I've done lots of good things for you, God. 
And I've done all kinds of good for the house of the Lord and for the people of God. I don't sense Hezekiah saying, Lord, now remember me in this situation. I'm asking that, and of course we know from the text as it goes on, he's asking to a degree for an extension of life that God would be merciful. And that even though he got that news, that God would somehow miraculously intervene, in essence, almost you might say change his mind and spare his life and allow him to have an extension to his life. But I don't believe that He's saying, Lord, I've walked before you in truth, and I've been loyal, and I've done good, so therefore, Lord, you need to do this for me now. You owe this to me. That is probably one of the worst basis for prayer anybody could come up with, <laughs> to think somehow you could say, well, Lord, look how good of a Christian I've been. And he's going, do we really want to go off of that? Lord, look how loyal I've been to you. Look at all the good things. Lord, I have done so many good things Why I've lived as a person don't you want me to do more good things? or Lord? I, I don't sense that's what he's doing all. What I sense is what Hezekiah is doing in sincerity is he's asking the Lord for mercy as he's weeping bitterly before him. And I think what he's really asking in mercy is, Lord, would you be merciful and extend my life so I can continue to walk in your truth? Lord, I'm just asking for an opportunity to serve you more. Lord, I've done good things for you and I'm not asking you to do good for me because of that. Lord, I'm asking, if it's your will, can I do some more good things for you? Can I do more good for the kingdom? Like any king and like any leader, if he loves his people, his heart is, man, I, I don't want to depart. Lord, I want to help the people. At this time, the Assyrians are hassling us. They need leadership. And, and if I'm taken out and I die in the midst of this already difficult time in the nation... Lord, that's going to be difficult for the people, and it's going to cause them to struggle. I think of Paul's words where Paul talks about, you know, that he was torn in the book of Philippians between departing and being with Christ, which he said is far better. But he said, I realize that to remain would be more beneficial for you if I remain in the flesh. And Paul understood that reality. Paul said, you know, if I had my preference, I would much rather depart from this body and go be with Jesus. That would be way better. But he says in Philippians, but I realize it's more needful for you that I remain in the flesh. And Paul said, I'm torn because he was torn. He wanted to stay on earth and continue to do, you know, what was good and, and to be helpful. And boy, look, I, I can 100% relate to that. I, th I think of a one particular occasion you know, many, many years ago when we were back in Pennsylvania and we were pastoring Calvary Chapel of York and I was going through some, some, some health issues and got a couple, you know, brain MRIs and there was you know, a little period there where there was some real potential uncertainty if something really major and somewhat, you know, catastrophic to my health was going on. And at that time, our girls were very young. And, and, and I, I remember kind of that sense of, you know, kind of the confrontation, not knowing yet, like, is this, am I facing my mortality here at a young age with a wife, young children, you know, we were, you know, a few years into, you know, pastoring the church at that time, and it wasn't an issue of, I'm scared to die. At that moment, my theology got very crystal clear, very crystal clear. All the stuff that we believe and know about the gospel, boy, when you, when you have some sort of a confrontation with your mortality and the potential of possible death, I mean, the gospel gets real clear real quick what you believe. And so I had a peace from the Lord in regards to my own personal situation, but, but to be genuinely honest with you, I was so greatly concerned for the reality of the impact that if the Lord took me home, what that was gonna have as an influence and a traumatic impact upon my wife and my three small children and the church. And I, and I can tell you, there were times when I would lay there in bed at night in the dark when there was kind of the uncertainty of that, and I would literally lay there and just quietly cry and talk to the Lord and just say, Lord, I'm, I know that I'm okay, but I'm not done raising my kids yet. Please, Lord. Lord, I, 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 I want to finish this process. And Lord, if, if, if this doesn't have to happen, and again, I didn't have full answers, that, but, but Lord, I, I don't want to leave Trish. And, and, and I remember literally being burdened and laying in bed just crying at night in the dark of night, 
next to my wife as she slept away, just between me and the Lord, just being so concerned about that reality. And I don't say that not that she didn't care. Let me quantify that lest I get attacked for that later on. Uh, She was very compassionate. She just falls asleep much easier than I do. And she sleeps way better than I do. (laughs) Uh, But I remember wrestling through that reality. And I can wonder how Hezekiah here, to some degree, he's saying, Lord, if it's in your plan, I want to keep serving you. There are more good things that I want to do to help the nation. I don't want them to be without a king at this time. And, And he's weeping bitterly in relation to these things. Well, verse four says, at that point, the word of the Lord then came to Isaiah. The other accounts tell us in Kings and in Chronicles that Isaiah had just kind of passed through the courtyard and then the Lord spoke to him and said, Isaiah, you got to go back, change the message. And I, again, I, I pity the ministry of prophets <laughs> because imagine poor Isaiah, now he hears, okay, Isaiah, I want you to go back in there and we're going to tell him something different. And he's thinking, are you kidding me? You're going to get me stoned. I just went in there and told the guy. And now, and again, the perplexity. I mean, it is a, the wonderful thing is the ministry of a priest in the Old Testament was glorious because it was all prescribed and laid out, and all they had to do was just follow the word of God. That's all they had to do. The ministry of prophets was very difficult because God would tell them something, and they would have to say stuff, or God would ask them to do things, and they had to be genuinely certain they were hearing from the Spirit of God. So imagine what this must be like. He's just delivered this message. He doesn't know what's going on. He just sees Hezekiah turn over. He's praying. He's seeking the Lord. He dismisses himself. He walks out. Then the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah. Now he says to him, go tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. So in God's merciful answer to this prayer and the sincere heartbreak of this man, God saw his tears, God saw his heartbreak. He says, Hezekiah, I've seen your tears, and I've heard your prayer. You know, I think sometimes the Lord needs to remind us of that when we find ourselves working through something very, very heavy, how personal of a God he is. Here's all these people on this ball of dirt, millions and millions of people. And God says, I see your tears. I see you laying there on your bed crying, and I hear your voice and the thing that you're talking to me about. I've heard your prayer And the Lord gives now the assurance that in answer to this prayer, he says, surely I will add to your days 15 years. Now that tells us that's one of the things clearly he was praying. He was praying for some way of an extension of life because God says, I've heard your prayers and this is my answer. I will now add an extension of 15 years to your lifespan, a 15-year extension And also, verse 6 seems to indicate what he was also concerned about. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. So it seems also that Hezekiah, in the midst of this praying, as I said, was concerned, Lord, what about the Assyrians? And I don't want there to be a vacancy of leadership, and this will disrupt the people, and I love them, and I want to help them. And God says, listen, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver the people from the Assyrians. Now, you may notice also from verse 6, we can tell that we're not perfectly in chronological order that Isaiah chapter 38 actually happened before the events of Isaiah chapter 37. Because remember the end of chapter 37, what happened? God delivered the people from the Assyrian army. And now God's giving a promise to Hezekiah, I will deliver you and the city from the king of Syria, and I will defend the city. That was God's assurance and God's promise. Apparently, these events of this illness and all this happened prior to the miraculous deliverance that we saw happen in chapter 37, which tells us that this was something, again, what we've talked about in our last study, Hezekiah was concerned as the people were outside the city, they were surrounding it, and he's thinking, Lord, on top of all this, if I die, here is the king. That's just going to weaken us all the more. Who's going to take over? They're going to capitalize. They'll conquer Judah. They'll conquer Jerusalem. So these were all things that were going through his mind as he was praying. And God also gives the assurance that he was going to deliver 
the city and defend the city, and we actually saw him honor that prayer in chapter 37 last week as God assures them of this mighty deliverance. But again, we look at these verses, and again, it's another very strong reminder to us that God not only hears, but God acts in response to our prayers. Remember last time as we looked at the deliverance that God was going to bring to Judah through Hezekiah spreading out the scary, intimidating letter before the Lord, the Lord specifically said in chapter 37, verse 21, because you have prayed to me. And then God speaks of how he's going to bring deliverance for the city. But God specifically said, Hezekiah, the reason I'm going to deliver the city is because you prayed. Almost indicating if you didn't pray, you have not because you ask not. Meaning that if he would not have prayed, things could have turned out differently. And here God specifically allows things to turn out somewhat differently in a very unique way. God actually extends the life of this man after telling him that he needs to get his house in order and that he was going to die and not recover from this illness. Now, this lends itself to this whole concept of trying to figure out, and I am not smart enough or theologically you know, profound enough to tell you, wait a minute, God's perfect will, God's permissive will, God said he's going to die, now he just prays a prayer. Can you change God's mind? Well, I do think to some degree that there is validation, what I see in Scripture as a whole. When you're certainly free to disagree. I don't have the corner on the market of truth, but I do see occasions within the Word of God, and I certainly have been walking with the Lord long enough. I do sense that there is at times, I believe, God's perfect and ideal will in certain circumstances, and then God's permissive will. What God will allow to happen, and he will permissibly allow to unfold, but it was not his preference. It was not his perfect ideal will but God in his sovereignty at times doesn't override to such a degree that everybody's just like a puppet and as if there's this fatalistic idea that nobody has control, our decisions don't matter, our prayers don't matter, even praying is a waste of time because it's just, it's just whatever's going to happen is going to happen whether you ask or behave this way or act that way. I, I, I think there's, there's a balance in those things. I think God superintends and God ultimately brings to pass and coordinates everything according to the counsel of his will. Ultimately, God always gets his way in the end, ultimately. But I do see where there are times where it seems that God will make a permissible allowance. And in this situation, God chose to show mercy. God chose to extend his life 15 more years because of the pleading and the prayer that he made in this situation. God said, go back and tell him an extension is coming. Verse 7, and this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Now we'll see at the end of the chapter, he actually was asking for a sign. Lord, how do I know that this is going to be the case? Imagine the back and forth. Well, those are two different messages. How do I know that God's heard my prayer and will do this? The Lord said, behold, I will bring, verse 8, a shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. So as evidence to give assurance that he would now recover, he couldn't go to the local hospital and get a PET scan or an ultrasound or look, it's not there anymore. You're fine. God says, I'm going to do something miraculous for you specifically as a clear evident sign, something so unusual that it could only be something divine and miraculous happened, that it would be assurance to you that you are indeed going to recover from this illness and that you're now not going to die. And God does this miracle here to ensure him where literally it says God took the, the, the sun, the shadow on this sundial, which they used to measure time in that day, and God turns it 10 degrees backwards. Now, that would be important because on a sundial, the, the shadow on the sundial, it would always move forward. As the sun would, would, would continue to move, the shadow would always go forward, forward, forward. So basically God's saying, I'm going to turn it backwards 10 degrees. Now, the question becomes, and everybody wants to speculate, well, wait a minute. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I mean, literally, how could God do that? I mean, well, I mean, God certainly has the power over light and darkness. God could have, you know, bent in some ways the forces of sunlight and bent 
the ray of light in such a way where he made it go backwards 10 degrees on the sundial and turned the clock, if you would, backwards. That's a, certainly a, a possible legitimate thing. God did something on a local level that was a little local miracle on that particular clock and turned back time, if you would, and turned the sundial back by refracting the sun or doing something locally. Uh, God may have somehow, I don't know, again, he's God. Maybe he literally turned back time, literally, in Hezekiah's life. He's God. If God says, you know what? In this situation, I'm literally going to turn back time for you. I'm going to literally revert back and turn back time in order to orchestrate the thing that I want to do so that you do recover and that you don't end up dying in this situation. Or maybe one of the most awesome things to think about as you think about the, you know, the earth rotating on its axis, revolving around the sun, all these kind of things, and how a sundial would work and how it would move in that way as the earth is rotating and you know, revolving around the sun in that way. Who knows? What could have happened is did God somehow in his superpower for the sake of this smaller miracle in one man's life, did God basically stop the earth from its rotation for a brief period of time, which they say about a thousand miles an hour at the equator is how fast it's spinning. Did God just sort of, God just put his hand on and just squeeze the brakes like brake pads and just stop it temporarily so that this thing could go back 10 degrees. Now that's pretty marvelous because if God did that, imagine everything didn't go flying off the planet. Imagine and then half of population just goes shooting out into the you know, outer space in the galaxies. I mean, that's pretty impressive if God did that. And not to mention, if he stopped everything and temporarily stopped it, then he had to, he had to re-spin the thing again to get it going. Now, which of those God did, I don't know. The bottom line is, it was a clear miracle of the Lord, and Hezekiah knew it. And it was that bigger miracle that God did that was the assurance Hezekiah I'm going to work in this way to show you that you can be certain that I can handle the smaller thing in your life if I can do this. And look, these are good reminders on occasion when we see the power of God in these ways to realize that a God of miraculous power can control all things and do as he wills in your situation, whatever that involves. If he wants to answer prayer, if he needs to work in your situation, God is not limited in any way. God can turn back time. God can literally stop heaven and earth. God can do whatever he wants to do. The Bible is full of indications of the miraculous power of our God and how he's never limited in the ways that he can still orchestrate things. Well, verse 9 tells us, This then is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered. So after he recovered from his illness, it seems in a reflective way he kind of documents now some of his own reflections of what he was processing and thinking through as he got this terminal illness, he got this word from the Lord, he then prayed it through, got the indication that now God was going to answer his prayer. Verse 10, he says, I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. Again, Sheol, remember in the Old Testament, is always a Old Testament term for the place of the dead or the realm of the dead. So he says, man, I, I can't, bear to hear this. In, in the prime of my life, he was a, a man probably somewhere in his latter 30s when he would have gotten this news. And he says, in the prime of my life, I'm going to go to the place of the dead. I'm being deprived of the remainder of my years. You see how humanity thinks? In his mind, because according to the way he viewed things, that was the prime of his life. And he, God, what about all the remainder of my years? But see, the reality is that's our wrong human judgment again. We always have this perception of what a full life is, what the prime of life is. How do we really know what the prime of a person's life is? Everybody's book has different lengths. And I think we make a great mistake sometimes when we you know, overthink this kind of idea that you know, a full life is measured by its duration. Look, folks, a full life isn't measured by its duration. It's measured by its donation by the donation that we make to fulfill the purpose for which God put us on this planet for, and that may have all different lengths of time for every different lifespan. 
But we all kind of tend to think like this. You know, we say that, oh, so, so, so unfortunate. He was in the prime of his life. He was all the, so many years got cut off of his life. And we're not God. Who are we to really know that or to say that? And, but again, this is just shows you the, the humanity. He's genuinely feeling this. He said, Lord, I shall not see Yah or Yahweh. Lord is in the land of the living. In other words, he was saying, Lord, I'm going to miss continuing to serve you and see you work, God, in the land of the living. If you bring me to the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. And again, in the Old Testament, they lacked some degree of understanding that we have. Paul says, 2 Timothy 1, that you know, things have come to light through the gospel and the resurrection for us. But they had sort of a fuzzy view of the afterlife. And he's saying, Lord, I'm not going to get to see you work anymore in the land of the living and I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. In other words, he's saying, and I'm going to miss all the people that I get to spend time with on this world. He was grieving that he wouldn't be with people anymore. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me from the loom from the day until night you make an end of me. So again, he's speaking metaphorically here describing his life notice he speaks of the temporary nature of his life being taken from him like a shepherd's tent a tent remember was a temporary dwelling place you took it down you didn't stay in it forever and you moved to another destination the bible often speaks of our physical body like a tent it's just a temporary dwelling place and he says i feel like my life is being cut off like they would cut off the end uh, of the uh, yarn with the weaver's loom that he was being cut off. And it seems that this was burdening him as he was wrestling through this and praying through this. Verse 13, he says, I've considered until morning like a lion, he breaks all my bones. In other words, I feel like I'm just being crushed. From day until night, you make an end of me like a crane or a swallow. So I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fell from looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. So he's describing there how he spent long spans of time all day, all through the night. He describes kind of mourning and grieving. And initially he was mourning and grieving the reality of this heavy news that he was not going to recover. And he was mourning that at first. We saw that, weeping bitterly, praying Yet in all that, his prayer life was increasing tremendously because he said, Lord, I keep looking upward even in my morning. And he says, please, Lord, undertake for me. Lord, help me. If you don't undertake for me in this situation, Lord, there's nothing left that I can do. I need you to undertake and become involved and to take over control. And of course, we know word came back from Isaiah. I've heard your prayers. I've seen your tears. I've extended your life for 15 years. Now, this seems to be somewhat the response to that. When he got that great news, he said, what shall I say? And you know, when God does good things, that's kind of what our response is. What can I say, Lord? I can't believe you're being merciful to me. I can't believe you're going to be so gracious to me, almost speechless. He says, God, he has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. He's the one that's declared it. And he's the one that has done it or will do it. And that's the truth for all of our lives. When God declares something's going to come to pass, he himself will be the one to do it and bring it to pass. Therefore, he says, I shall walk carefully all my years. I want to be careful, Lord, and live well with the remainder that I have left in the bitterness of my soul. He knew that life was difficult. Sometimes life is bitter. It's Hard to swallow, he says, but I want to be careful in the remainder of the years you've given to me. O oh Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me live. Lord, you're the one that's able to, and you're the one that will restore me. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. In other words, he ultimately realized, boy, this hardship really was for my benefit ultimately, it helped me sort through things, the hardship, the bitterness. It did something wonderful in me internally. It was for my own peace, he says, that I had this great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. The idea is the body decaying. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. He knew this was the mercy of the Lord, that the Lord had forgiven in any way, any way that sin had had a bearing on this. 
Boy, that's something we can all say there spiritually, even our salvation in Jesus Christ, very picturesque of what he says. Same way with the deliverance of our soul. He's delivered our soul from the pit of corruption, and he's cast all of our sins behind his back. How wonderful. The forgiveness of the Lord, that he doesn't look upon our sins, he doesn't see us in our sinfulness, that he's merciful to us because of his kindness and goodness. Verse 18, for Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. In other words, Lord, if I go there, I won't be here on the earth to continue to glorify you and to honor you. Now, again, we may look at that and say, man, why wouldn't you want to just go to heaven and glorify God? You have to understand he's speaking from the reference point prior to the cross and the resurrection. There were some blurry ideas in the Old Testament in their minds of how the resurrection would come to pass when the Redeemer came and so forth. So, like any human being, he's, you know, he's not wanting to, to pass physically. He says, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do to this day. In other words, Lord, I want to continue to live because I want to continue to praise you. I want to use the rest of my life to praise you and to honor you. And not only that, but notice he also was inspired with this extension of life, he says, because I want to declare your truth to the next generation. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. He sensed a burden to want to convey the truth from his generation to the younger generation or the next generation. I have that underlined in my Bible and starred because that was one of the verses many years ago when I read it that really spoke to me about my calling and my role as a father to raise my children in the ways of the Lord. Certainly, we were called to do that together as a team, parentally, Trish and I as parents, but I took that as one of many charges. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. I didn't look at it as, well, my job is to do this and this, and my wife's job is to teach the kids about the Lord and train them spiritually. And look, she was with them, in all honesty, as a stay-at-home mom for many, many years as I worked, and she was a stay-at-home mom way more than I was, but I still did not look at it as, as that I was somehow excused from the spiritual training aspect of my kids' child raising. I firmly believed the Word of God told me as a spiritual leader in my marriage and in my family, the Father shall make known God's truth to the children. That that's our responsibility as fathers, and I do believe as the priests of our home spiritually, it is our role as fathers, and we should take that calling very, very seriously. He says, verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs with the stringed instruments as in the days of our life in the house of the Lord, he would celebrate. Now, verse 21 kind of circles back on our narrative saying, now Isaiah had said, notice past tense, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, past tense, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So, Isaiah brings us back to this reality, kind of circles back. Why did God do the sign of the sundial? Because Hezekiah had said, Lord, can you give me a sign to assure me that I am not going to die and I'm going to recover from this? And the Lord said, okay, this is the sign, the sundial sign, the miracle of the bending of the light back to 10 degrees, turning back the time. But notice we're brought to our attention here, verse 21, by Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord, was also like the diagnosing physician. Isaiah the prophet said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. So notice, Isaiah says, listen, you're not going to die. God is going to cause you to now heal and to recover. And this is going to be a part of the process. I want to use this medicinal treatment. Take some fig newtons crush them up, make them in some kind of a paste, whatever else they use medicinally, put it on the boil, and somehow that was a part of the process in the recovery of the situation. Now, I want you to take notice. The Holy Spirit draws that to our attention so that we can see that this healing and the recovery of a terminal illness in King Hezekiah's life came through prayer, absolutely. It came through also medicinal help 
the use of a form of ancient medicine, medical practices, medicinal assistance, medicinal help, and God's working, all three of those things. Prayer, medicinal help, and God's miraculous power all working together. And the Holy Spirit brings this to our attention. Why? Because we need to be balanced in regards to understanding God's healing. And we often fly to one of two extremes. Either we want to think the only way God heals is through miracles and signs and wonders, and it has to be a somebody's, you know, in a wheelchair and in the name of the Lord, get up and they jump up and they throw their wheelchair aside or that instantaneously as hands are being laid on a person, the cancer erratically, you know, just miraculously leaves somebody's body right away or, you know, whatever would just be this mind-blowing, supernatural, miraculous, instantaneous healing. And some people, that well, that's, yeah, that's the way God heals. We don't need medicine. You have a lack of faith if you go to a doctor, or you can't trust doctors, or you shouldn't take medicines, and, and some people land there. And other people, at times, maybe weigh too much heavily upon medical practice and medicine alone, and they never do things like call for the elders of the church and ask to be anointed with oil and pray in expectant faith and say, God, you don't even need medicine if you want to heal me. And if you want to heal me, God, I know ultimately you're the healer, but I'm going to be open to prayer and the power of God Look, the Bible shows us a blend and a balance of all those things. We see miraculous, instantaneous healings that God does at times, and then we see occasions like this where the recovery and the healing by God's prescribed word, God's manner of healing was, use some medicinal help for that guy. That's how he's going to heal. That's how he's going to recover. Look, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul tells Timothy, his protege, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Notice, he doesn't say, Timothy, feel free as a minister to drink a little wine because eh, we're all about grace, man. He says, Timothy, use a little wine. And he says, a little wine. He doesn't say drink alcohol. He says use alcohol, he tells Timothy. As an older minister, younger minister, because probably Timothy's thinking, man, I shouldn't drink. That's a bad example. And, and, and he's probably struggling, you know, want, wanting people to think he was drinking alcohol. And Paul says, Timothy, listen, you got Montezuma's revenge as a missionary, son. You're sick. You're on the pot constantly. Timothy, this will kill the bacteria. Stop being legalistic. Stop overthinking it. It's the form of medicine we have Use a little wine to help balance out your stomach issues and your infirmities so you can be healthy and serve. He's basically saying, Timothy, take your medicine. Use medicine. You know, it's even interesting in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, in the New Jerusalem, the, the kingdom of God, age when the holy city comes down, it says there's a special tree there with the leaves of the tree, which are for the healing of the nations. So even in our heavenly eternal existence, somehow God's going to use leaves of a tree to bring healing in some way to even glorified bodies and situations among. So again, I think we need to stay balanced. God has the power to heal via miracles, via medicine, or a blend of both. And we need to always be open to that and maybe not lock God in to our own little legalistic idea of how God works and let God be God. Maybe that's why he does it the ways he does differently at times to let us realize that we don't understand it all. Verse 1 of chapter 39, let's run through this quickly. It says, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylonian, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory and all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show him. Now, at this time, Assyria is still the world empire, but Babylon is trying to grow in power and influence, and they'll be the next world empire. And as this event unfolds and this incredible recovery happens with the king of Judah, Hezekiah there, word gets out, and the king of Babylon and these representatives from Babylon they're trying to build power and influence because they realize they're an up-and-coming empire. So they send now kind of this 
gracious letter trying to work angles to gain position that they wanted. They're trying to kind of make progress here. So they hear about this recovery and they send up some ambassadors with letters to go visit and to pay their regards to Hezekiah, having heard that he recovered from his illness. And Hezekiah is impressed by this. So he now, really in somewhat of an attitude of pride, begins to show them everything within the palace. You know, interesting, the prior letter from the king of Assyria was intimidation to threaten harm. This is now a letter of flattery, and it becomes a way where the enemy uses a different angle to ultimately bring a servant of God down. Second Chronicles 32 says, however, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from Hezekiah in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. See, what we see happening here, folks, now, unfortunately, is Hezekiah is beginning now to struggle with pride because these ambassadors come and it's almost as if he's impressed by this he feels special. He's getting special attention. They're just looking to manipulate them because they want to basically spy out the territory because as they rise in power, they want to know everything about a future enemy that they're going to go in and conquer. And they're basically deceiving him through compromise and flattery. And he, in arrogance, wanting to admire them, starts showing them everything, it says, of all his treasures. Notice the emphasis in his armory and his treasures, there was nothing in his house and in all his dominion. Wait a minute. Didn't God give you all this stuff? But notice, now it's all about him because he's having a pride issue now. And now pride is beginning to build in his heart. He's feeling that he's important. The power's going to his head, and now he's beginning to get an inflated view of himself, and his pride is becoming a big problem as he's becoming full of himself in personal arrogance now, and then Isaiah the prophet went to him, verse 3, and said to him, what did these men say to you? And from where did they come from? So Hezekiah said, oh, they came to me from a far country. It's almost as if he's impressed by, you know, how they're admiring him. He's so proud of this. Man, I'm, I'm important. They came all the way from Babylon. Don't worry. They're not locals. They're not going to harm us. I'm just so big of a deal now. I've become so popular so important, the man who God healed, the great king who's so powerful, God gave him another 15 years, and now it's all going to his head. And now pride and arrogance is becoming his downfall. They came to me from Babylon. And Isaiah said, well, what did they see in your house? And Hezekiah answered and said, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. He thought it was a great thing. It really was the dumbest thing he ever did. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Here's the first word that Babylon would be who would conquer Judah and the southern kingdom. Wouldn't happen for another almost 100 years, but this is the prophecy now that these very people who just visited and he gave a full-scale tour of all of his house, all of his treasuries, all the access points, all the stuff that now they've spied out that they're going to actually come and kill and accomplish a complete conquest and carry away all the treasures to where nothing's left. Verse 7, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, that is his ancestors, and they shall become eunuchs, those who are castrated, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, we know that happened because Daniel chapter 1 tells us the name of a few people. One of them was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that these men were ultimately taken, these young men, and made eunuchs when Babylon came and conquered the people. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 that Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him by God, for his heart was lifted up. And so what you have happening here, unfortunately, is he gets caught up in his own pride, wanting to have admiration, and now he opens himself up to enemy access, and he makes himself foolishly vulnerable, and Hezekiah underestimates greatly the danger of flirting with the enemy, and boy, pride is costly. Because now he's just made himself completely vulnerable, and it will lead to great defeat 
in his own life. He opens himself up to enemy access thinking, oh, it's okay. And the reality is in his own pride, he's blind to the fact you have just opened yourself up to the very thing that is going to destroy your life. That's going to be the downfall of this kingdom because your own pride was driving you. It's going to lead to your defeat and to your very conquering, unfortunately. Now, sadly, as he hears this news and realizes now the, the mistake that he made, Hezekiah then said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. In other words, he realized it was true. For he then said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Now, that's kind of a sad ending to that. Well, I mean, okay, that's true, and, and I guess I got a little arrogant there, and I'm going to bear the consequences for that, and I'm going to be defeated now. But he says, I am kind of relieved. At least it's not going to impact me. I mean, yeah, it'll ruin everybody else's life. Yeah, my arrogant, self-seeking attitude that cares nothing about what's best for the welfare of other people. I mean, yeah, it's going to greatly impact them, but hey, at least it's not going to do anything to harm me. So as long as it doesn't influence me, I don't care what happens to everyone else. Boy, how really sad. Talk about the epitome of being other-centered, the opposite of that being self-centered and not loving people at all and just doing what's in your best interest and not even caring about what it's going to do to impact others. Boy, Hezekiah has taken a real downturn in the latter days of his life. Talk about a man who was doing really, 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 really well through many of the stages of his life, but he didn't finish too well. Didn't have a very good ending. You know, let me just point out one thing quickly, if I could. He asked for a 15-year extension. Two major things happen in that 15-year extension. One, he makes this horrific mistake in pride that leads to the downfall of the entire nation and the harm of multitudes of people who were innocent victims in the process, the harm of his own family because of his own pride and self-seeking interests, and the other thing that happens in the 15 years is he gives birth to Manasseh, the most evil king in the history of Judah. You know, I point that out for this reason. Sometimes I think we need to pay attention when it seems the Lord is saying, this is what my will is, that we don't try and resist what God's will is saying. But Lord, could we maybe have a B option on that? Could we do something a little bit different? All I can tell you is God permitted it, but not, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of beneficial things came out of the extended 15 years. Sometimes it may be better to just say, you know what, Lord, your will be done. Whatever you want for me, you do what you want. Please don't give me my way. Lord, have your way. That's the safest and the best way so often as a way to pray. Let's stand together.